When the largest aircraft ever built crashes into a New Jersey field, cries of sabotage surface immediately. To this day, conspiracy theories about what destroyed the famous Hindenburg circulate amidst the marvel of this huge flying balloon and the rock star pilots who flew it. But, like any good mystery, there's a thread of truth, a smoking gun that's often overlooked, and sometimes a cover-up. Best-selling author and former Wall Street Journal reporter Michael McCarthy follows this thread through facts and lies, reality and fiction, to sort out the mystery of the hidden Hindenburg. Episode 1, A High Wire Act. For three generations, suspicions have lingered about the largest object humankind has ever managed to fly. Was the Hindenburg destroyed by sabotage? The famous Zeppelin caught fire as it tried to land in New Jersey in 1937. There were hundreds of witnesses on the ground. There were film crews. Could it really have been a bomb? In May of 1937, just days after the fire, images of the disaster spread through movie houses. The shocking scenes became one of the world's earliest viral videos. But the Hindenburg has haunted me since I first heard this chilling recording. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, flagged up a little bit. It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's flying and it's rising. It's rising terrible. That's Herb Morrison, a radio man, live from the scene. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, it's, it's like running. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity, and all the past. I was teaching a class in journalism history, and one of the final segments we did was on radio. I explained that the recording we just heard was one of the most stunning moments in the history of broadcasting. Herb Morrison looked up in the sky and just started hyperventilating into the microphone. The emotion, the obvious crying that he's doing at the suffering always struck me. And maybe somehow hearing that made me think that there's something more to the story, that his voice almost seemed to come through the decades to me listening and ask the question, what happened there? My quest for an answer would span two continents. I would dig up records and letters in English and German. The journey would take me into archives in Washington, Dallas, and Germany, and, little did I suspect, deep into World War II and the Nazis. The Hindenburg disaster captivated the world. There was rampant speculation of its cause and immediate pressure to find answers. There was one man eager and ready to supply those answers. Charles Rosendahl was commander of the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst, New Jersey. He had flown on the Hindenburg many times as an official observer. He was there. He was there on May 6, 1937, when the Hindenburg crashed. Here, in an interview with the National Museum of the Pacific War, he describes what he saw. Yes, I was the commanding officer at Lakehurst on the 6th of May, 1937, when the Hindenburg took fire upon landing and was consumed by the fire of her own hydrogen. I saw the whole thing. I had flown in the German airships a great deal. And, of course, I participated in the official uh, investigations of the cause of the accident. 
But he did far more than just participate. When I began my research into the tragic events surrounding the Hindenburg, I turned to 300 pages of declassified FBI documents detailing its investigation into the crash. Over and over, one name kept coming up, Charles Rosendahl. As I read those pages, his energy, his anxiety, seemed to waft from the pages. His voice was urgent. For whatever reason, he was really pushing agents to investigate sabotage. He was hell-bent on finding a saboteur. When the Hindenburg crashed in 1937, it had just completed its maiden season. And the world had Zeppelin fever. Shortly after Charles Lindbergh piloted a plane by himself over the Atlantic Ocean, the Germans were orchestrating an incredible high-wire act. The mighty Hindenburg would spend the whole year easily transporting the rich, famous, and adventurous across the Atlantic. The Hindenburg carried 50 passengers and tons of cargo. It was like a magic carpet. All the time, this contraption floated with an astonishing volume of very hazardous gas. The ill-fated Hindenburg sails over New York. Inside the silver envelope are 16 separate gas bags, each filled with hydrogen, a highly inflammable gas. A lighter-than-air hydrogen bomb, one spark from disaster. The Hindenburg was a technological marvel. It cost more than $2 million back then. It was over 800 feet long, more than two and a half football fields. The ship resembled a fat cigar. It was 135 feet wide in the center. As it passed over, the Hindenburg would shadow whole city blocks. Think of the Goodyear blimps you see in the sky today. You could easily fit eight of them inside. To this day, it is the largest flying object civilization has ever produced. It motored over millions of people and left them mesmerized. Germany's success with the Hindenburg was confounding. Country after country had tried and failed to fly these balloon machines. Since the early 1900s, Germany had floated more than 100 Zeppelins with a near-perfect record of safety. It flew one, called the Graf Zeppelin, all the way around the world. That was in 1929. It was a spectacular flight that filled all the newspapers. Radio stations updated its progress every few hours. But for other countries trying to fly airships, omens fell from the sky. Tragic fires, crashes. America failed, France failed, Britain failed. How did the Germans do it? Into the early 1930s, Zeppelins were the only aircraft that could soar through the sky over long distances, carrying tons of cargo and people. The airship experiment held the promise of the world's first real over-ocean air service. It was a marvel. Now, the Hindenburg was bigger than the Graf Zeppelin, and the world couldn't wait to see it. It was called the Super Zeppelin, a ship of firsts. Even before the Hindenburg was constructed in her hangar, American newspaper syndicates had reserved spots on her first flight to the United States. It was effectively her world debut. Eight reporters were on board that first week of May 1936. They would chronicle the first stewardess, the first Catholic mass in the air, the first piano concert on an airship. The Hindenburg's piano was specifically built with aluminum instead of wood making it a featherweight, 112 pounds. That's important on an airship where every pound mattered. You're listening to it now. On the wall behind the piano, a head and shoulders photograph of Adolf Hitler. A record 106 people made the flight across the ocean. A radio announcer from NBC transmitted dispatches aboard the Hindenburg melding the craze in radio with the latest in aviation. 
It was also futuristic, a hundred people hurled over the ocean in a capsule. Its windows were composed of a German chemical advance called plexiglass. For an exhibit, the transparent glass was shaped into a see-through violin. It would soon be a hit at the World's Fair in Paris. The Germans appeared to be at the cutting edge of everything. The Hindenburg seemed to convey to the new world, a newer world. The Hindenburg's dining room could seat 50 passengers at once. Waiters in dapper suits served five-course dinners on elegant blue and gold-rimmed china. One evening's menu consisted of celery cream soup, Strasbourg goose liver and aspic, carrots and butter, chanterelles, pro-cut potatoes, a mixed cheese platter, and coffee. In the kitchen, the stoves were electric. Burners with flames? Seriously unthinkable on a hydrogen-filled ship. One spark spelled doom. Smoking? Verboten. There was one sealed lounge for those who just had to puff away. In the dining room, forks and glasses clinked amid hushed conversation in German, English, and other languages. Talk often turned to politics and Hitler. So when did the Hindenburg arrive in America? May of 1936. Naturally, the radio man wanted to hear from her famous captain, Dr. Hugo Eckner. He was a stooped man in middle age. He had pouchy eyes. He was a celebrity the world over. I am glad I am again here with a new airship. We had a wonderful flight in a record time of about 50 hours from coast to coast. That is nearly half the time the fastest steamers need. I am convinced under all weather conditions we'll be able to make the flight in all regularity and safety. Thank you. The fare for the Hindenburg was set at $400 one way. Between America and Germany, $720 round trip. Things were so successful, the Zeppelin company decided to add additional cabins, enough for 22 more passengers. With the season's end, the Hindenburg spent the winter in a hangar in Frankfurt, and maintenance workers conducted an overhaul. It was supposed to be routine. But in time, I will learn something deeply troubling, something the overhaul workers discovered. On May 6th, a Thursday evening in 1937, the Zeppelin arrived at Lakehurst, and Germany's run of good fortune came to a tragic end. These scenes were filmed by Pathé News cameraman William Deke, the actual crash of the Hindenburg. Seven million cubic feet of inflammable hydrogen gas blazed up in less than a minute. Heroic work by Navy and Army men risking their lives around the white-hot skeleton snatched more than one dazed and half-burned passenger from the blazing wreckage. But for the most, there was no hope. Hailed as the luxury liner of the air, the Hindenburg's horrible end has shocked the entire world. The pride of the skies... When I started my investigation, I knew none of what you just heard. I did not know that the whole massive ship was destroyed in about 30 seconds that 36 people died, that a remarkable 62 survived. Learning all that would come later. I simply had my memory, the chilling radio announcer's voice, the man on the scene of the tragedy. And as I began looking into the cause of the Hindenburg disaster, I was surprised to learn it had remained a mystery. First, I read three books on it. No real answers. The official investigation ruled that electrical charges in the sky must have ignited leaking hydrogen. But why the leak? A mystery. 
Apparently, the Commerce Department ran the investigation in 1937. Commercial air travel was its jurisdiction then. No FAA yet. Those investigative files and the transcript were out of reach. They are in the National Archives in Washington. I live in Michigan. What about the internet? When you search Zeppelin, guess what comes up? That iconic Led Zeppelin album with the fiery Hindenburg is typically what you get. Eventually, I find more than 300 pages the FBI had released from its work on the case. They had been declassified in 1989. This is where I would have to start. And looking back, I would never have found my way if it hadn't started right there. I printed out all the documents. I began reading. After the Hindenburg fire, the FBI began snooping around the airbase. A legend was involved, Jagger Hoover. On Hoover's orders, the agents were supposed to assist the Commerce Department, but they would step in only to investigate formally if there were reasonable suspicion of a crime. A cavernous hangar in Lakehurst. That's where the hearings would begin. Places filled with dozens of men, most with hats on the desks near them. Military police stand nearby with rifles. A big American flag, visible with its 48 stars. Meanwhile, the wreckage of the Hindenburg sits nearby, outside. With the next morning's first light, a naval inspection board headed by Captain Haynes inspects the wreckage, as others search the still smoking ruins for a possible clue that might yield a key to the mysterious disaster. The remains of the Hindenburg will not be moved until the arrival of Germany's expert, Dr. Hugo Eckener, who heads a commission that will conduct an investigation simultaneously with the Department of Commerce. Hugo Eckner was an expert on the Hindenburg. He ran the company that constructed it. He was the main captain on the Graf Zeppelin when it flew around the world, and he briefly piloted the Hindenburg. He seems amazing. From what I've read, he did something incredible during World War II. He resisted the Nazis by interfering with their attempts to use Zeppelins and lived to tell about it. Book after book marveled at this man, a good German in a bad Germany. Maybe too good. Before Eckner arrives, Commander Rosendahl asks to meet with the FBI agents. He suggests the FBI search the field for evidence of sabotage. Firearm shells, bomb fragments, suspicious chemical traces, anything. Again, he is pushing hard to steer the investigation toward one conclusion, that the Hindenburg was more than just an accident. In previous days, Rosendahl had ordered members of his staff not to speak to the press, and he quashed discussions to broadcast the highly sensational proceedings. They would end up being held in radio silence. That leaves the Newark FBI agent sitting in on the hearings, every single word of them taking notes. At the end of the first week, after many witnesses, he sent a telegram to Hoover. The telegram reads, quote, Testimony to date, stop. Indicates accident apparently caused by some structural defect, stop. No evidence of sabotage as yet. When Dr. Eckner arrives from Germany, he walks through the wreckage. He tells reporters he cannot discuss the case. Of course, you will realize yourself that in this moment, as long as investigation is pending, it is impossible, impossible for me to give you any statements or any ideas regarding the causes of the disaster. Eckner, I later learned, did know something. Here's where things turn weird. It's Tuesday evening, May 18. The hearing is 10 days old. 
Rosendahl calls an FBI agent. Rosendahl asks him to come to his office the next day to discuss something too sensitive for the phone. He tells the agent he is a personal friend of Dr. Eckner. He says Eckner told him privately that the ship must have been sabotaged, either by communists or anti-Nazis. He says that Dr. Eckner had personally interviewed every member of the German crew. Then Rosendahl spins a sensational tale. The crew told Eckner that they were suspicious of a passenger, a fidgety little man named Joseph Spa. He had repeatedly gone back into the ship, ignoring rules to the contrary, to a cargo area to feed and check on his dog. Rosendahl noted that the man had an unusual job. Spa was an acrobat, a professional one. He was capable of scaling high up into the girders inside the Hindenburg to plant a time bomb. To Rosendahl, Spa was aloof from the other passengers, and he urged the FBI to investigate him. Agents would later interview neighbors, sift through Spa's personal papers, review footage on his Bell & Howell movie camera, Rosendahl has a historic tragedy on his hands, and he wants to arrest a circus performer, a flying Melinda. Spa survived the deadly crash, but the investigation of him was a dead end. Then Rosendahl told the FBI something else sensational. He said he visited one victim in the hospital, and that victim mentioned something incredible. The victim Rosendahl mentioned was another Zeppelin captain, a well-regarded pilot named Ernst Lehman. Lehman was on the Hindenburg and died from burn injuries the day after the ship crashed. In the hours before Lehman died, Rosendahl said he visited him in the hospital. And on his deathbed, Lehman told Rosendahl that the disaster was caused by a, quote, infernal machine. Infernal machine? Rosendahl told the FBI that that had to mean a firebomb, that a bomb caused the disaster. Years later, he would repeat this supposed deathbed confession in several books. More about Ernst Lehman. He was a seasoned Zeppelin pilot, a little over five foot tall. He was nicknamed the Little Captain. He had flown Zeppelins more than anyone in history, piloting more than 200 trips over two decades, logging tens of thousands of miles over oceans, over continents. He smoked a pipe. He was an engineer and a pioneer in the new field of aeronautics. He knew every inch of the Hindenburg bow to stern. Captain Lehman died four days before Rosendahl took the stand. Rosendahl was the first witness at the Hindenburg hearing. If Lehman had just divulged a sensational bomb theory on his deathbed, Rosendahl forgot to mention it in his sworn testimony. In fact, he testified, quote, I have no knowledge of what was the origin of the fire. Did Rosendahl somehow forget? Did it slip his mind that a veteran Zeppelin captain on board the Hindenburg told him a bomb took it down? I do a little more reading on Rosendahl. He was a huge cheerleader for Zeppelins. He thought the balloon ships would become a form of transportation that would outlast the airplane for long-distance flights. In the summer of 1925, the U.S. Navy suffered a tragic crash of its Shenandoah airship, the first large one made in America. One of the survivors was the navigator, Charles Rosendahl. Navy buddies nicknamed him Rosie. He was a fanatic who called Zeppelin transportation, quote, the cause. And he continued to support that cause long after other military officers and other business people dismissed Zeppelins. They saw them as too big, too costly, and too dangerous to be of any use in war or peace. In the roaring 20s and early 30s, 
Airship captains like Lehman, Eckner, and Rosendahl were public sensations, like the astronauts to follow decades later. They were in the papers all the time and on the radio. Their names were answers to crossword puzzle clues. But if the official investigation turned up evidence of a structural flaw in the Hindenburg, it could spell the end of the Zeppelin cause, the end of Rosendahl and Eckner's dreams, thousands and thousands of people traveling the globe by Zeppelin. It would certainly mean the end of Rosendahl's flying career. Rosendahl reported the surprising deathbed confession of Lehman exactly one week after Eckner arrived from Germany. When the world-renowned Hugo Eckner came to Lakehurst, he stayed as a personal houseguest of Rosendahl's. The two Zeppelin veterans had had hours to discuss matters privately. Did they cook up something? Thanks for listening to The Hidden Hindenburg, the story behind the making of the book of the same name. For even more intrigue and mystery about the Hindenburg, you can find the book The Hidden Hindenburg at Amazon.com and other retailers. In the next episode, I travel to the National Archives in Washington, where I am stunned to find a whistleblower's letter. It could have cracked the case wide open back in 1937.